Okay, here we are. This is episode five in our series, Finding Other Worlds. This is a commentary on The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. In last episode, we started to look at The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, which is the second book in the Chronicles. So if you want to be up to, up to catch, up to date, up to the point in our plot with The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, just listen to the episode before this. Whether it's apparent to you now or not, whether it's relevant to whatever is happening in your life at the moment or not, you must know that there are times in life where you find yourself in a kind of relationship tangle, no matter who you are, no matter what your walk, what your path is, there is every now and then, for some people more often than not, but however it is, there are times when you're just stuck with this relationship dilemma. You're stuck in this bind which is feeling bad about a relationship and having no way to fix it and not knowing how to fix it and knowing deep down inside that you do want to fix it. Now, this happens most commonly in family because family is, well, family is blood. Family is one of those things that, well, you do want to fix if it's wrong. It's one of those things that deep down inside, you do know that things should be set right. Now, whether you believe that, whether you think that's possible, whether you know that, well, those are all different questions. But fundamentally, there is something however hard as it might be to admit at certain times in life, that says that family should be good. You should be good with your family. You should be at peace with your family. You should have that as a strong relationship. You should have that as a kind of support. And you should be supported and give support as is needed, and yet there are these situations which come up where it's just stuck. You can't get to that simply because, well, there's too many factors, there's too many complexes, there's too many bad feelings, there's too much resentment, there's too much baggage. There are too many tangles. There's too much history. You know that you know that phrase, oh, we've got history? Oh, there's a little history there? Well, that's really this phrase that gets at this thing, which is, well, there are issues that are unresolved. There are things that haven't been said. And in that situation, well, it's very hard. Make no mistake about it. It's very hard for things to get back on track. And it isn't always the case that healing occurs. There are many families that aren't happy families. In fact, you could even say, depending on from where you're looking, that the majority of families are not happy families. Is family a happy affair? Do you feel love in your family? Do you feel support in your family? You feel close with those of you that are your kin. And 
where we are in our narrative, well, there's quite a big rift between Edmund and his brothers and sisters. It's quite a big mess that he's found himself in. And as the plot unfolds, as this story continues, we'll see what happens and how that tangle untwines and how things come out between the brothers and sisters and what they have to go through. So, Edmund has been trapped by the Queen and he's with her in her sled and the dwarf and they're going off to something to find out about some magic or something and the wolves are after the beaver and the brothers and sisters, Lucy, Peter and Susan. And they make their escape and as they're going through the snow, well... Actually, Father Christmas turns up. Now, isn't this so strange? What can we say about Father Christmas? To see Father Christmas, to see Santa in this novel, what a strange character. Now, this is significant because it means that, well, the tides are turning towards good again because the Queen had this spell which would make it always winter the White Witch, I should say. I keep calling her the Queen because of the last book, but she's the White Witch. We call her the White Witch in this book. She has this spell which makes it always winter, but never Christmas. So for Santa to turn up, well, that's a big victory. That's a tide turning for the good side. And we have these mythological creatures in this world, right? There's a fawn, there's a talking beaver, there's a flying horse. There's all sorts of fun fun and fantastic creatures. And, well, it turns out that Father Christmas is one of them. He's sort of part of this fantasy world. And yet, we do also have Father Christmas in our world, right? Santa is a character, which we have at, Christmas time, and the statement here that C.S. Lewis is making is that these mythological creatures, they all have something in common. They're all from some same world. And that's the beauty of this image. That's the beauty of these children turning up to see Father Christmas in the snow with his reindeers and his sled. And you wouldn't normally have that, right? You don't have you don't have Santa in Harry Potter. Or do you? I don't know. I've forgotten. I can't remember Santa in Harry Potter. And you don't have Santa in Lord of the Rings, right? Or any of the other fantasy novels. Well, maybe you do in some of them, but not any that I can think of. And whether they are or not is not really the point. The point is that Here in this world, in the world of Narnia, we see that there's a commonality between all the mythological creatures, between all the different beings. And that, well, is something to take note of. So Peter gets a sword and a shield for Christmas. Susan gets the horn and the bow and arrow. And Lucy gets a small dagger and the healing potion. And they go on, they continue their journey, and they actually meet up with Aslan at the stone table. So the stone table is apparently a magic place of, I guess, spiritual significance or magical significance. So... That's why Aslan's turned up there. And, of course, the the kids are overwhelmed to meet Aslan. They just think, this is so amazing. And what's more is that, well, now the winter is also passing and it's turning into spring. So all the trees are coming out, all the green is happening, the snow is melting away, 
the birds are chirping, and it's so amazing to see things coming to life in this new spring. And Peter comes to meet Aslan face to face, and one of the first things Aslan asks is, well, where's Edmund? And Peter explains, well, he's with the White Witch. And Peter also adds that, well, it might have been his fault. And to this, Aslan doesn't respond. He doesn't say, no, it's not your fault. He doesn't say, no, it's okay. But there's something in that, which is that Peter realises that when Edmund was being snide, well, Peter's response wasn't really that supportive either. And Peter's starting to see how it is that he played a role in Edmund becoming so bitter towards him. That's what Peter is realising in this moment when he says to Aslan, well, it might be his fault, it might be my fault. It could be because of the things I didn't do or the things I didn't say that Edmund started to have the feelings that he had which led him to think the things he did, which led him to actually go and be with the witch. So Peter's feeling that. Peter's sensing that. And Aslan says, well, it might not actually be very easy to get him back. It's not a problem that is going to just take a switch of the wand. It's not going to have some magic thing come in and fix it. So Aslan is quite stern about that. So they also go up, Aslan and Peter, to see the castle. And it turns out that, well, Aslan says Peter is going to be the king of Narnia, and also along with his brothers and sisters. And then there's also this prophecy, right, which is that if four brothers and sisters sit on the four thrones of the castle, well then... The prophecy will be fulfilled and there will be peace in Narnia forever. So that's the conversation that goes down between Peter and Aslan as they're standing up on the hill. And as they're standing here, well, they actually hear Susan's horn. She's blowing her horn. And this means that Peter has to run back and see what's happening. And as he turns up, well, the wolves have turned up that were chasing them. And they are causing a war on this little camp with Aslan and all his animals around and all his people around. And Peter has this showdown with the head wolf. He has this fight and he actually ends up killing the head wolf with his new sword. And that's his way of, as he says, earning his stripes, earning his, wait, his stripes, earning his spirits. I can't remember which one it is, but... Basically, he's proving himself as a prince. He's proving his worth in battle. And after this, Aslan blesses him and tells him to never forget to clean his sword because he's sort of standing there with the blood of the wolf still on it. And Aslan says, you better clean your sword. Now, that's a funny, that's a funny thing to emphasize, I think. That line has always jumped out to me. Why is he emphasised to clean his sword? I just like to think that there's some sort of symbolic meaning in that, which is whatever it could be, whatever you have come to mind. Clean up after you've done your business. Could be that simple. Could be as easy as that. Or don't let the kills that you've done hang around on you. Maybe that's another way to say it. But I've always found it curious that Aslan specifically told him to never forget to clean his sword. Now, in the distance, well, Edmund is still with the witch. And now the witch is talking with with her sidekick, the dwarf, about killing Edmund because they figure that this prophecy about four people, four humans, sitting on the thrones of the castle, 
can't come true if one of them's dead, right? And so that's what they're planning to do. They're planning to kill Edmund. And the witch wants to have it done on the stone table. She has some technicality in her magic. And, of course, they realise that this can't be done because Aslan and his crew is at that spot at the moment. So they're setting up to just kill him where they are. And just in this moment, a wolf turns up and tells the witch, well, this is one of the wolves that escaped from the battle, tells the witch what's going on. And so she realises, okay, now I've really got to do it, right? Now Aslan has got his things sorted out. We've really got to make sure that Edmund is definitely dead. So she ties him up and starts sharpening his knife. And just in the nick of the moment, a rescue party turns up, which was able to follow this wolf who had led them to where the, the witch was. And they take Edmund back to Aslan, and he's finally back with the good guys. But before Edmund gets to see his brothers and sisters and everyone else, he has a conversation with Aslan. Now, we don't find out what is in that conversation. But what we do find out is that it's a conversation that Edmund will never forget for the rest of his life. And we also find out what the effect of that conversation was. And we see this when Edmund comes out and he faces Peter. He faces Lucy, he faces Susan, and they see each other again. And just in that moment, just in that experience, they know that everything needs to be put behind them. They know that everything is all right again. They know that they can never hold such hard feelings against each other again. And Edmund says sorry, and they hug, and they all wish there was something that could be said to just sort of acknowledge this newfound... I want to say, well, what's what's the word? It's like a... It's a new bond between the brothers and sisters. They want to acknowledge this new bond, this new learning. And yet, somehow they also don't need to say anything. So that's an important transformation. That's an important difference that occurs. That's an important shift that happens. And we'll see, we'll see that as a difference later on in a, in a few minutes as we see what happens with the witch because... What happens is, well, the dwarf turns up, the, the witch's dwarf, and says, well, can you allow the witch to meet with Aslan and talk? And they agree to the terms. They say, well, she can't bring her wand and has to be off in some secret place. And it's all arranged. So the witch turns up and she claims that she has a right to kill because Edmund is a traitor. And this somehow has a strange difference. It has a strange effect on... It has a, it has a curious effect on the children, we should say. Because normally, or what could have gone down, was that she would turn up and call Edmund a traitor, and that would cause rift between Edmunds, Edmund and his brothers and sisters. He would actually feel guilt for it. But because of what's happened, because of this new bond that he has between his brothers and sisters, well, that doesn't really fly. It doesn't really sit like that. 
it's almost like Edmund can sort of see that she is the treacherous one, that she is sort of trying to put this on him. And now he doesn't actually fall for it. So the bond is unshakable. The bond is deeper than just, oh, whoever can suggest how it is, is how our relationship is. How the brothers and sisters are between them cannot be dictated by someone else coming and pointing out certain things, even if those things are negative things or wrongdoings. And here we also see the difference between, well, Aslan and the witch, between good and evil. Because Aslan had made it so that, well, they don't need to talk about Edmund's wrongdoings. They don't need to hold grudges against each other. They don't need to bring the past as a problem into their current relationship, into their current dynamic. All of that is gone. All of that is taken care of. All of that is not a problem anymore. And now the witch, well, she's doing the exact opposite. She's sort of bringing up, look what you've done. You should be killed for what you've done. You are a traitor. She's holding the wrongdoings against Edmund. And that really is, well, that's the difference between wisdom and evil. That really is the crux of the issue of any relationship tangle. That problem that you have with someone in your life really does come down to who's holding the grudge. How can you let go of the past? And of course, it does have to be done on both sides. It has to be acknowledged on both sides. There has to be a shared understanding. There has to be a commonality of shared experiences and emotions. But that is so well illustrated between this difference between the witch and Aslan. So the witch and Aslan actually do go off and talk alone because as the laws of the magic in this world are, the witch is actually right. She does have a right to a kill. And what they agree to, well, the children don't find out. They're not privy to that conversation. But when Aslan comes back, he says they have to move camp. They have to move away from the stone table. So the whole party and everyone packs up and walks off. And Peter and Aslan also talk about battle tactics. And he's sort of talking to him as if he's not going to be there, right? He's sort of saying, you'll have to put your things here. You'll have to see this flanking here. You will have to do this. You will do that. He says to Peter, and Peter's sort of like, well, well, won't you be there? Aren't you going to be part of this? And Aslan says, well, no, I can't guarantee that I will. Most likely he won't be. And this is quite a blow to Peter. This is quite a big hit because it means that, well... Now there's no one looking out for him. And he has to be the prince. He has to be the young king who can lead everyone and be the actual head figure of the movement. He can't rely on someone else. And that's another test for Peter coming into his maturity, coming into his wisdom. How do you do the duty that's required of you when there's no one else who can back you up, when the people there watching over you aren't there. The normal head figures are absent. And that's the lesson he has to learn. That's the lesson he's going through. So, 
that night, Lucy and Susan can't sleep. And they sort of get to talking to each other about how they're feeling and they realise that they just can't shake this feeling that something bad is going to happen. They just sense something is up and that's why they can't sleep. There's something in the air. So they go out and they look around and they see Aslan sneaking off and they follow after him. And they meet up with him and he says, well, why are you following me? And why do you look so sad? And Aslan says, well, I am sad. And he allows them to follow him for some of the way, but at a certain point he says, I must go on alone. And it's at this point that the the girls, Lucy and Susan, realise what's going on. They realise where he is going, and they realise who he is going to meet, and they realise what is going to happen. And they hide away, and they watch him from a distance as he goes on, and he turns up at the stone table. And there, at the stone table, the witch is standing with all her evil creatures around. You know, there are gargoyles, there are all sorts of goblins and all sorts of things. And they're all sneering at this Aslan. They're all sneering at him. And she's laughing and she's saying, Ha ha, look at this fool who has come. And all he does is stand there. He's completely passive. And of course the girls are thinking, well, he could, he, he's Aslan, he could take these guys on. He could defend himself. But he doesn't. And he goes forward and he lies down on the stone table and they tie him up in these tight ropes. And they cut his mane and all the creatures and the witch are standing around laughing at him. They're all saying, here, pussy, pussy, who's a little cat now? They're taunting him. And they put a muzzle on his mouth and they really tie him tight. And of course, the girls can barely stand to watch. They can't stand it. They can't understand what is going on, what is happening. And then... Right at that moment, the witch pulls out a giant knife and she raises it up over Aslan. And just before she does it, she says to him, You fool, I'm going to kill you. And once you're dead, what is going to stop me from killing him too? And that is the treachery of the queen, uh, the, the witch, I should say. That is the cold-heartedness, that they'd have an agreement, right? This was the agreement that she would kill Aslan and not kill Edmund. But she flaunts it in his face that she has no intention of honouring that agreement. She allows him to be in that despair as his last moment alive. And she brings down the knife and she kills Aslan.
So, the gaggle of evil creatures hordes off, and Lucy and Susan cry, and they cry, and they cry, and they cry, and they cry so much until there are no more tears. And they realize that there are some mice around who are, at first they think, having a go at Aslan over his body, but they realize he's, they're they're chewing the ropes to undo it, and they take off the muzzle, and they sort of sit with him for some time, and there's this thing that happens, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, where... If you cry so much, if you cry all night, then there's a kind of peace that comes at the end of that. There's a kind of quietness that comes. And that space is a space that really only you can get from crying. And it's quite a unique space. It's for so many reasons very rare to find. Because, I mean, how often is it in life that you cry until you can't cry anymore? It's not something that does happen every day. And that's the sort of space that Lucy and Susan go into. And... The sun comes up, the day unfolds, and they head off. And as they're making their way around, they hear a sound, and it's a big crack. And they think, what's happened? Are they doing something to Aslan's body? And they run back, and they see the stone table has been cut in half. It's been cracked right down the middle. And of course, they also see... Aslan has risen from the dead. And this is their joyous moment. And they play with Aslan, they jump around, and he laughs and he roars. And he explains to them that, yes, there is the magic, the deep magic of the traitor being killed, and that's what the queen had been playing on, but there is also a deeper magic which is when a willing victim who had done no wrong was killed in a traitor's stead, well, death itself will start working backwards. And another thing that Aslan says is that, well, the reason the witch didn't know that is because she didn't look beyond time. She didn't look deep into the darkness before the beginning of time. And that says something about where Aslan gets his wisdom. That's where he gets his otherworldliness, which is really just to be beyond the world that he's in. To see something that is so far out that it's beyond time and space itself. So that's what's happening with Aslan as he rises from the dead. And it's a very joyous moment. It's a very playful moment. Lucy wonders if maybe it's like playing with a kitten, but it's not quite the same because, well, Aslan is a lion. (laughs) And they jump on his back and he gives them a ride to the Queen's castle. Sorry, I keep calling her the Queen, but she's really the witch. And (laughs) maybe that says something about my intentions. (laughs) Maybe not. I hope not. Anyway, let's not not get into that. Let's not make this story about me. (laughs) So where are we? Let's move on in our plot. Aslan turns up at the witch's castle and... 
There are all these statues around, and he starts breathing life into them again. Because, of course, these statues are frozen animals. They're frozen creatures by the Queen. And one of them is Mr. Tumnus the Fawn. So Lucy is reunited with, with Mr. Tumnus, and she has so much to tell him. And they're dancing with joy. They're so happy. And there's also a big giant. And there's sort of this comment about, well, as Aslan breathes life into them, will, will he be all right? And, and Aslan says, once the feet are right, the rest will follow. And it's sort of this funny thing where you think, well, if he's a stone statue and you breathe life into the feet, might the statue fall over, right? But then that's not exactly what Susan was meaning, which is that, well, if you bring a giant to life, won't the giant, you know, squash you? <laughs> and then there's also the, the further insight, which is if you get the feet right, then the rest will follow, which is if you get your foundation right, then everything else will fall into place. So that's a funny little image there. That's a good one. I like that one. And then there's also another lion, right? So one of the creatures that gets turned out of turned back from being a statue is another lion. And he's sort of, you know, Aslan has this thing like, oh, us lions, we're going to go in this direction. And this lion, he sort of he sort of gets a bit cocky, like he's on the same level as Aslan, like, yeah, us lions, us lions, like we are lions, like me and Aslan, we're the same. And then Aslan sort of puts him in his place by loading him up with these little creatures and saying, okay, well, you carry these seven different creatures. And then he's like, oh, right, okay. So it's, it's sort of funny that that difference comes out in this other line, which is that just because you're a lion doesn't mean you're the king of the jungle, right? It's a very obvious difference in the character of Aslan, this godlike figure, and this other lion who is a bit playful. So that says something about just the type, just your kin, just because who you are culturally or even economically or in terms of your class doesn't determine what you are or your goodness. There's something else. So that's an, another, yet another interesting image. So with all these creatures turned out of stone, turned back to their original selves, they've got themselves a small army and they run back to where Peter is camped. And when they turn up, they realize that the witch is t raging war on Peter and all his people. And there are actually all more stone figures all around the battlefield. And Peter is in battle with the witch. And it's all chaos. It's all battle. It's all clashing and fighting and all this stuff happening all over the place. And Aslan comes into it and he roars. And it's not exactly clear what happens. It's not exactly clear how this happens, but the queen is killed. And I don't think it's exactly clear in the narrative who kills him. I mean, it might have been Aslan, it might have been Aslan's roar, but the point of the matter is that the queen is killed and everything is restored, everything is happy and they have peace again and they've won the battle and good triumphs. And another thing comes out as they're sort of finishing up this battle is that Edmund had broken the witch's wand and that had been a critical thing in the battle because people had been coming up to the witch to try and, you know, fight with her and she would just turn to them and turn them to stone, right? But Edmund, he'd been able to, instead of going straight for the witch, he went for the wand, and without her wand, she wasn't able to turn people into stone anymore. And that had been an important thing. But because of this, Edmund had suffered a wound. He'd been actually hit by the, the uh, I think it was the knife or the sword or whatever the other weapon was that the witch had. So 
Edmund was wounded. And in that moment, just after the battle, well, that's where Lucy comes in. Because remember, she had the healing potion. And of course, Lucy cares deeply for her brother. And he gives her, gives, he gives him, she gives him the healing potion. And Aslan says, okay, very good. Now you've got to get on to the other people. And Lucy, well, she wants to stay with her brother, right? She wants to be with him. But Aslan insists. He says, no, there are many wounded people. You have to do your duty and get on to helping them. And that's something to understand about leadership. That's something to understand about knowing when it's the right time to be with someone. Because sure, Edmund is hurt and sure they want to be with him she wants to be with her brother and there's a strong connection there but there are more important things than that so prioritizing things in a time of emergency is a very important skill so they made the kings and queens of narnia and they get to fulfill the prophecy and sit on the thrones in the castle and they have new outfits they grow old and they rule the land and they do all the kingly and queenly things that kings and queens do throughout Narnia for many years and Peter well he becomes Peter the Magnificent And Susan, she becomes Susan the Gentle. And Edmund, he becomes Edmund the Just. And Lucy, she becomes Lucy the Valiant. And probably out of the four of them, the most interesting one or the most important one to note is Edmund. Right? Edmund the Just. So he's someone who counsels, he became someone who counsels people and ju- and does things fairly. So he does a fair judgment of things. And you can see in the arc of his character, of all that he's been through and all that he's learned, why that's important to him. Why that's a character trait which is instilled in him. Because he's really seen, well... He's seen both sides of it, hasn't he? He's seen how it is for the witch to treat things unjustly, to treat the people in her life unjustly, to do things by a harsh judgment. And yet he's also seen how Aslan has done things. Now, the other children don't have that. The other kids don't have that. They haven't been to the dark side. They haven't seen the ways of the witch up close like Edmund has. So for him to be able to see both how things can be just and good and also how things can be unjust and not good is what makes him a just person. It's his ability to weigh the two, to understand the two. And it's not just that he understands it, right? It's not just that he's thought about it. It's that he's actually experienced it firsthand. He's got the cold. He's got the desperation. He's got the guilt. He's got the resentments that he used to feel still inside his memory. Now, he doesn't feel those things anymore. Of course, he understands that, well, that's long past He's now growing old as a king in the world of Narnia. And his wisdom really is that he's integrated that. It's that he's understood himself. And that's brought him to be the character that he is. And that's probably the most, it's probably the most noteworthy character. He's the most noteworthy character in this novel. So, as it happens, as it does, 
in tales like this, in stories like this. Peter, Susan, Edmund and Lucy are off on an adventure one day, travelling through Narnia. As they do, just chasing their curiosity. And they come upon something which is most curious. And that is a lamppost. They see a lamppost in the middle of the forest, as if it had just been grown there. And they look at it and they think, what a curious thing. And as they look and as they wonder and as they talk, they start to notice that, well, there's something that they need to understand about this. There's something they need to remember. There's something as if from a far-off distant dream that they know about this lamppost. And as they talk it through, as they think about it some more, and as they take a close look at it, they sort of realize, yes, we must do something about this lamppost and find what is nearby, and they walk on a little bit. And sort of without knowing what's happening, without realizing how things are, they find themselves back in the wardrobe. And they come out back to where they were in their big house in the country, and they are their children again. They are their same old self, as if nothing had happened, as if no time had passed, on the same day, in the same hour, as when they had first gone into the wardrobe and found Narnia. So, what a trip, right? What a head trip to wake up from. All of a sudden it seems like a dream, a whole lifetime seems like a dream. And they think it over for some time and they decide to go and talk to the professor about it. And they tell the professor, well, just about everything. And of course, (laughs) what does the professor do? I really like this professor. (laughs) I really think there's something so beautiful about this professor. He really does know so much. He's such a good character. I wish I had a professor like that sometime. And what does he do? Well, what does he do when he's being told these tales by the children? He listens. He listens without judging. He listens without interrupting. He listens wholeheartedly and fully. He listens with all his being and he accepts it. And of course he says, well, it's understandable what you've been through. And he does offer some words of advice, which is that you shouldn't talk about it too much. Not amongst yourselves and not to other people. Particularly because most people don't know about those other worlds. And I think there is a lot in that. There is so much in that. Because people who go to other worlds don't talk about it. They don't share their experiences because they know how crazy they will sound to others. They know how outlandish they will sound. Now, the professor does say that, well, some people do have the same sorts of adventures. And you can even tell, right? You can tell by looking at someone. or You can tell by these certain certain comments will come out, certain things will be said that seem a bit out of place. They'll just give little indications that these people have been to other worlds. It's just like, well, not people, but a person could indicate that they've been to another world. And he also says that 
You shouldn't go looking for Narnia. You can't actually find Narnia on purpose. You can't actually find it on your own accord. And he says that, well, there is a chance that it will happen again. So, that's all stuff that applies. I hope you get that. I hope you can see what I'm trying to say between the lines. Because all of this is real. All of this is exactly the case. This is exactly how it is. This is why these stories are so resonant. It's because they say it as it is. They explain it in in so simple terms, clear as day, that this is how it is. There are other worlds and people have been there and they're not going to tell you about it. They're not going to tell stories about it. You would never even know. You would never even know what sort of worlds other people have been to. So, that concludes The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe. And the next book is The Horse and His Boy. So, we will continue our series with that book, which will be the third book in the Chronicles. So... Look out for that episode. You could probably listen to it right after this. It'll probably be out by the time you hear this. And I'll also mention that if you're enjoying these episodes, please share with someone you know, someone you think might like them, or share another episode of the Andrew Lake podcast. Talk about it. Let someone know. Just suggest it as that will help me gain some exposure, that will help me to actually get it up and running. So thanks very much, and that's all I have to say for now.